Good morning, Good Shepherd. Whether you're live streaming or whether you're live at our campus that's in Charlotte, North Carolina, I'm Talbot Davis, the pastor here. And yeah, it was a phenomenal winter retreat last week. There's 175 people there and at least one drone. I don't know if you noticed that, that some of that photography was taken from the air. Pretty all remarkable. And you know, to take 175 people, 130 of them, the teenagers and the rest volunteers, on a winter retreat, overnight, food, cabins, during a, an era of pandemic, COVID, there, there's risks involved. But you know what I loved about that retreat more than anything else is that there are risks of not going. And we were able to lay out the risks of not going and, and, the, the, uh, and so, many, so many parents, parents trusted the church in a situation like that. And so many teenagers encountered Jesus as a result of what happened. And so I'm just really grateful to be part of a congregation that, that weighs those risks and comes to a very healthy decision. And uh, so, so, so glad to be part of that. Now, normally, the video that you just would have seen would, would not have been about a winter retreat, but it would have been what we call the sermon bumper video, a little intro to the series that we are in. And that series that we are in, if you're, if you're first time with us, you're not aware of it. If you've been here the last few weeks, you might know. It's called Scripture and the Skeptic. Because a lot of us know people in our lives who are skeptical towards faith and towards the Bible. Some of you are married to that person. Others of you love that person. Others of you, you grew up with that person or you raised that person. And for a lot of you, it's the person that you see when you look in the mirror. And so we thought, well, this would be smart to devote a few weeks to talking about what is it that people who are doubtful about, skeptical towards Christianity and Jesus and the Bible, how can we address some of their concerns? And a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at, isn't, isn't the Bible only human? And, and, and last week is, why is the Bible so messy? And what we learned last week was that the Bible highlights what we hide when it tells about its heroes. And that makes it more inspired, not less. And then today's message is, is called, can we talk about Leviticus? <laughs> can we talk about Leviticus, the third book in the Bible? So if you have your Bible with you and it looks something like this, just find Leviticus. We're gonna be jumping around a, a little bit in Leviticus. And if your Bible's loaded on your phone, you know, scroll down to Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And if you got neither of that, the words are gonna be up on the screen. And all that's vitally important to us for, for you to be able to see it for yourself. Because not only do we recognize at Good Shepherd that uh, although this looks like a book, this is not a book. It's a library, a lot of different kinds of books written over a long span of time by many, many, many different uh, authors. And the book of Leviticus is sort of in the history section, but sort of in the, the legal code section of the Bible. And that's just kind of factual. And the other thing that we believe about the Bible here, and again, you may be a skeptic towards this, you may not be sure, just want to be honest with what we believe in leadership. And we believe that there's no other library like this one, that God breathed his life into its words. He placed his truth onto its pages. The Bible is inspired, eternal, and true. And because of those beliefs that we have, we do this kind of different thing when we're together and we lift it up. And and, and again, if you haven't been here before, you haven't tuned in live stream before and you, you see there's phones and Bibles in the air and you're like, that's just kind of strange. 
And you know, we say, we admit it. We don't try and pretend like, oh no, it's not strange at all. No, it is. But we've discovered this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community, that we are a collection of people surrendered to the authority of the word and ready for its power to be let loose in our lives. Amen? Amen. And before I say another word, let's pray. So Father, thank you for the goodness of your word. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired that word. And I ask that you would send a, a fresh pouring out of that same Holy Spirit on me as I communicate and on all those within the sound of my voice as they are communicated to. And that you would soften hearts and open minds and transform us so we're more like you. And I really pray, Lord, that that everyone within the sound of my voice would uh, complete this experience today with just being so in love with your scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, I, I love uh, kind of hearing about those read, because we're talking about scripture and the skeptic. And I really like hearing about those read through the Bible in a year programs. Now, I haven't, I haven't ever done one myself. I've read through the Bible. I just haven't done it in a calendar year because I don't really think that's how that's, the Bible is designed to be read or used or enjoyed. But that's another sermon for another time. But I know that a lot of you have heard of those programs that you, you start on January 1st in, in, in Genesis chapter 1 and by December 31st you're at Revelation chapter 22 and you've read through the Bible in a calendar year and some of you, you've heard of them, others of you have tried them yourself and, and so many people with the best of intentions as the new year begins, that's their resolution, I'm going to read through the whole thing cover to cover. And the way that it works is, is, is you start out in Genesis, first book, you find that mostly interesting, though, though you, you do keep wondering, well, what about the dinosaurs? And, and why does Abraham keep passing his wife off as his sister? What's the deal with that? And, but you finish your, you, you get through Genesis and then you turn the page and you get to Exodus and it starts out great and it's so exciting. And there's the movie right at the beginning of Exodus and there's Charlton Heston and he's raising his arms and he's splitting the Red Sea. People are going through it into, out of slavery and into freedom and it's so exciting. And then there's plagues and dogs and cats living together and just all kinds of great stuff. And, and so you're like an Exodus. And then, and then Exodus gets to the fourth quarter and the teams change sides of the field and it slows down and it begins to read like this bizarre blueprint for how to build a mobile worship center and the reason that it begins to read like a blueprint for how to build a mobile worship center is because that's exactly what it is that the last quarter of the book of Exodus is a blueprint for how to build a mobile worship center and you barely got your way through the end of Exodus and then you turned the page one more time and you entered the world of Leviticus and you started reading, because you had the best of intentions, and you started reading Leviticus, and you got to places like chapter 5, verse 2, where you can turn or look up at the screen, and it says this. 
if anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, if they unwittingly touch anything ceremonial unclean, whether the carcass of an unclean animal, wild or domestic, it's telling us not to eat roadkill. <laughs> Do not eat roadkill. Do not even touch roadkill. And you're like, I just, I just wanted to open up the Bible because Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And, and there's this roadkill stuff. And, and then it get, gets weirder. And there's chapter 14, verse 33. And look what it says, verses 33 through 36. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when you enter the land of Canaan, for which I am, which I am giving you as your possession, and I put a spreading mold in a house in that land, the owner of the house must go and tell the priest, I have seen something that, that looks like a defiling mold in my house. And the priest is to order the house to be emptied before he goes in to examine the mold. So that, and he needs to wear his hazmat suit so that nothing unclean in the house will be pronounced, un, nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. After this, the priest is to go in and inspect the house. You just wanted some religious stuff. And it's reading like a job description for a disaster restoration company. And it just gets stranger and odder. And it reads a little bit like a legal text with some very strange laws and very strange codes. And, and, and there don't really seem to be any characters. There's no narrative. There's no drama. There doesn't seem to be villains and there doesn't seem to be heroes. And there seems to be so little of practical value for us in the year 2022 that in spite of all your really good intentions, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year that by the middle of February, when you're in the middle of Leviticus, you can't imagine reading another page, much less going on to Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so your grand plan for the Bible in 12 months has met its match, and Leviticus is the one who killed it. <laughs> and so since Leviticus tends to be that book in the Bible where most people go to debunk the scripture, we're going to go there to defend it. And can we spend a couple minutes talking about Leviticus? Because there's something that we say a lot around Good Shepherd. And if you've been here a while, you've heard it. If you haven't been here a while, it'll be brand new to you. But here it is. It's, it's C-I-E, which means context is everything which is our way of reminding ourselves we don't read Bible verses, we read the Bible. Our way of understanding that you can't really understand what a, a section of scripture is talking about unless you see what the, the, the things before and after it talk about. We don't want to rip stuff out of its context and so rob it of its meaning. But when it comes to the book of Leviticus, the context that I'm talking about doesn't have so much to do with what's going on inside the book, like how does it fit together contextually inside, but rather the context of when was it written, who wrote it, and to whom was it written, and why? Because if you don't get any of that stuff, then Leviticus will remain meaningless, but when you understand what was going on, what the people were going through, then, then Leviticus becomes, oh my gosh, thank you, 
Bible authors. Thank you, God, who inspired the Bible for being so much smarter than I am. Because when was it that Leviticus was written? It was written about 3,500 years ago, at least 1,500 years before Jesus appeared on the earth. And to whom was it written? Listen, it wasn't written to you. We say this a lot too. No book of the Bible was written to you. They were all preserved for you. And in the case of Leviticus, it was written to that group of Jewish people, the chosen people, the children of Israel, just after Charlton Heston has opened his arms and parted the Red Sea and the Jewish people have gotten out of slavery into Egypt, they literally are malnourished slaves. And they're malnourished slaves who don't really know how to live. And they are headed very, with great uncertainty towards the promised land and towards freedom. They have been deprived of rights. They've been deprived of health. They've been deprived of autonomy for 400 years. And they're the original recipients of this book that has to, in so many ways, tell them how to live. And, 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 and the thing about that original audience and, and the thing about you and, and me as we try to figure all of it out is that you and me and all of us living in the year 2022, we have what's called the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge. Turn to your neighbor and tell them that they're cursed with knowledge. And the, the, curse, the curse of knowledge is that when you know something, when you know something, you forget what it was ever like not to know that thing. When you know something, you can't conceive that you ever didn't know that thing or that anybody else in the whole world ever didn't know that thing. And we living in the year 2022, we have all kinds of curses of knowledge that the people 3,500 years ago, they didn't have at all. It kind of makes me think of Dr. Philip Semmelweis who was a Hungarian surgeon in the 1800s, who began to notice something about surgery in Europe in the 19th century. And what he noticed is that surgeons would, would go from one procedure, say, an amputation. Can we agree that an amputation is a procedure? An amputation, cutting off a leg that has gangrene, or, or appendectomy, pulling, pulling out an appendix that's, that's all poisoned. They would go right from that procedure into another procedure, let's say childbirth, without disinfecting in between time. So let's go from cutting off a leg because it has gangrene, getting my fingers all in that leg, gangrene, and let me go welcome a new baby into the world without washing my hands in between time. And Dr. Philip, Dr. Philip Semmelweis began to try to put A and B together. Well, maybe, maybe that's why there's such high infant mortality rates. Well, you think? It's obvious to us, it's gross to us that they ever would have done it any other way, but only because we have the curse of knowledge. Dr. Semmelweis caught all kinds of flack for his theory. People did not believe him. 
In fact, it wasn't until after he was dead and gone that he was proved, probably because they operated him without disinfecting, that he, was, <laughs> that, that he was proven right. What we all know, we all know that sterilization is pretty essential to a good surgical outcome. Can I hear amen if you want your utensils sterilized when you're going under the knife? You don't want, a, you don't want a, an unsharpened blade and you don't want it to be dirty either. Amen? Because we have the curse of knowledge. Well, what's true about surgery in the 1800s was more true of all of life 3,500 years ago. That you have a collection of malnourished slaves who don't know anything about anything. About how to keep clean or how to keep safe or how to eat right or, or even how to practice their own intimacy. They don't know anything about anything. And so God has to give them this odd, strange, quirky book to us. But in their ears, and their ears are the ones that count, and there is a, it was a love story. It was like God loves us so much that he's willing to get into the deepest details of our lives and hello, protect us from ourselves. Like, like look at what it says in, in chapter 13 and verse 40. Look at what it says here. Where it's telling the malnourished slave, recently freed slaves, a man who has lost his hair and his ball, this He's stopped preaching. He's gone to meddling now. <laughs> a man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. He might be dejected and he might need extra strength Rogaine, but he's clean. Verse 41. If he's lost his hair from the front of his scalp and has a bald forehead, he's clean. But if he has a reddish white sore on his bald head or forehead, it's a defiling disease breaking out on his head or forehead. The priest is to examine him. And if the swollen sore on his head or forehead is reddish white like a defiling skin disease, the man is diseased and unclean. The priest shall pronounce him unclean because of the sore on his head. Do you see what priests had to go through in those days? I mean, like my degree to do what I do, it's called a master's of, Div you can call me master on the way out. It's called a master's of divinity. But to do it in those days, I would have had to minor in dermatology. It just seemed, but listen, we don't know what it's like not to know how contagious disease works. They didn't. And so God had to tell them. Or even the, the food laws throughout the book of Leviticus. Probably some of you, a lot of you, you have uh, friends who are Jewish who keep kosher. And if you have friends who are Jewish who keep kosher, some of you may keep kosher, why is it that they don't eat pork? Could it be, could it be because pigs will eat their young, maybe? Could, could it be because when, when the mafia, hello, when the mafia wanted to dispose of a corpse, they would put it in a pig pen because they knew that the pigs would eat everything, bones included, and so there was actually, literally, no incriminating evidence left because it was all inside the pig. Or that the other animals, the Jews were not allowed to eat, including shrimp. It was all because they're the pigs of the sea. 
Or, or that the other animals that, the, that Leviticus tells them don't eat, bats and rats and vultures and weasels and catfish? And you're like, check, check, check. Well, maybe on the catfish, but you're like, check, 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 check. All this stuff, bats and bacon and bats and bacon and bats and bacon. And it's, and it's all there not to keep the Jews from having fun. It was there to keep them alive. Or even, even Leviticus chapter 18, which is notorious for one verse, one verse that if you teach it, and it has to do with intimacy, and one verse that if you teach it today, it can be labeled hate speech. And, and actually, if, if you teach it in Sweden, you can actually get in trouble with the law there. But it isn't an interesting because context is everything. That, that one verse that's the subject of controversy and notoriousness today, there's a whole slew of verses that come before it where the book of Leviticus tells the children of Israel, malnourished slaves, that when it comes to how you practice your intimacy, I no can do. Look, look how it starts. Chapter 18 and verse 6 says this, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I'm the Lord. Okay, no close relatives. Verse 7, do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother, not your mother. She's your mother. Verse eight, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife, not your stepmother. Okay, no close relative, no mom, no stepmom. Verse nine, do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same, not your sister. Verse 10, do not have sexual relationships with your son's daughter, not your granddaughter, your daughter's daughter. That would dis honor you. Verse 11, not with the daughter of your father's wife, not your stepsister. She's your sister. And the reason, the reason this is here, because they were already doing it. Verse 12, do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She's your father's, okay, not your aunt. Verse 13, do not have sexual relations with your mother's, okay, Really, people, not your aunt. Verse 14, do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife. Really, not your aunts, no aunts ever. <laughs> then verse 15 through 18, it's not your, not your sister-in-law, not your daughter-in-law, no in-laws ever, not at all. Don't, don't do that at all. And, and we're like, check, 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 makes good sense, makes good sense. Skip down to verse 20, do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife, okay? Not with your neighbor's wife. It does not go well in the HOA, just, <laughs> just not with your neighbor's wife. And then verse 22, do not have sexual relations with with a man as one does with a woman, not with someone of the same gender. Whoops. We were all like, check, 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 check. Mike makes fine, makes perfect sense. We understand, we understand, we understand. And then verse 22, not with the same gender. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that all of us were nodding in agreement? 
The world is nodding in agreement for all those prohibitions. And isn't, until you get to verse 22, and isn't it interesting that, that it's only within the last couple of decades that people look askance at verse 22. At, at, anyway, isn't it interesting that what was once just kind of marginal is now absolutely mandatory and must be celebrated? Isn't it interesting that God can make such perfect sense until the one time we don't think he, we want him to? Unless, unless something totally different is going on with all of this. Unless Leviticus is such a love story that God's love is willing to get into the most intimate details of people's life, not to rob them of any fun, but so that they might flourish. And isn't it interesting that God's the one who thought all of this stuff up. He knows how diseases work. He knows how the human body works. Hello, he's the one who invented sex to begin with. And since he invented it, does he not have every right? Is it not within his divine mind to give us boundaries for how it is to be expressed? And isn't it likely, isn't it in fact probable that God is the one who knows what, what's good for us and what makes us flourish and he knows what to, how to keep us away from our own worst instincts? Because here's what I want you to know. Here, here's what reading Leviticus with fresh eyes really showed me. And it's this, God knows what's good for you better than you do. God, even in the most intimate details of your life, God is the one who knows what is good for you. And get this, God knows what's bad for you, what will harm you way better than you do. Like, like you and I, we, we get to those times in our life and we think, well, I know best. I, I, I've heard what the Bible said. And I'll just Bible believe in bigots. And I, I've heard what the Bible says, but I know better. And we begin to rush headlong into self-destruction. And God gives us a book like Leviticus. God gives us so much else of scripture to keep us from our own worst enemy and to begin to reveal to us what is best for ourselves. And it applies to what we eat and it applies to how we practice sanitation. And yes, even that area of sexual intimacy where there's so much cultural confusion and scripture brings us biblical clarity. God knows what's good for you better than you do. Because someone here, you feel like you can't get through today. You sure can't get through tonight. I mean, because there's like a football game tonight. <laughs> and you can't get through the day or the night without a glass of Pinot or a can of Coors. But you know yourself well enough to know that glass will become the bottle and the can will become the case. And you will wake up in the morning with the hangover to prove it. And you might even wake up in the morning with the arrest record to demonstrate it or the divorce papers to substantiate it. And in those cases, God knows what's good for you better than you do. And someone else here, you, you don't feel like you, you can be complete without romance in your life. You're single, you're single again. 
and you just feel like you have to have a romance, you have to have a someone to be complete in yourself. And in fact, some of you, you have sacrificed, you, you have things you believe really deeply about Jesus and the Bible and your faith. And yet you've been willing to sacrifice those things that you believe the most deeply just to catch that romance in the first place and to hang on to it in the long run. And if that's you today, God has brought you to this place to let you know he is enough. And he knows what's good for you way better than you do. And he wants to protect you. Hello. He wants to protect you from one more mistake that's going to fill you with one more rear view mirror full of regrets. And then someone else here. Hey, you just got a raise. Congratulations. Or you're just starting out your married lives together as a couple. Awesome. And you, whether you got that raise or whether you're newly married, you can't really conceive of taking 10% of your hard earned money and giving it away to God's work, whether it's the Charlotte Rescue Mission or Good Shepherd Church or the Children's Attention Home. You, 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 you can't, I, I can't give that money to, to God. It's all his money to begin with. Whether it has to do with the kind of chemicals you ingest, the, the way you practice your intimacy and your romance, or even what you do with your money. God knows what's good for you way, way better than you do. And he's given us this book of Leviticus and he, that's been preserved for us. And we, don't, we know how contagious diseases work now. They didn't know then. And he's given us this love story to demonstrate it one more time. He knows what's good way better than we do. And then there's this marvelous thing. There's this marvelous section over in chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus. Look at chapter 16 and verse 22, where we just, we, we read about what, what our Jewish brothers and sisters, what they call the day of atonement or Yom Kippur. And here's its origins. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. And he's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites. And now that you read chapter 18, you know how kind of icky that was. All their sins and put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. That goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. So here's what's going on for the Old Testament people in the book of Leviticus. The priest would take a goat and he put his hands on the goat's head and on that head he'd put all the sins of all the people that they'd committed all year long. I mean, that was a loaded goat. And then he'd send that goat out of the camp. That goat becomes the scapegoat. Take those sins away. And this is what the Jews would have to do once a year, every year. And then Jesus comes along and lets you know that in this and so many other ways, he brings completion. 
that what Leviticus is really looking forward to and anticipating is the day when, when the goat becomes a lamb and all the sins of all the world get loaded onto his head. But here's the good thing. And interesting, Jesus is crucified outside the gates of the city. In the same way they had to send the goat outside the camp, Jesus is outside the city taking the sins away. But here's the great thing, good shepherd, that instead of doing it once a year, every year, Jesus does it once for all time. One time. One time for all people and for all sins. Because Jesus always tells a better story and he always gives a better word. And in this case, he's the much better goat. And he always proves he knows what's good for us better than we do. We think we need a guru. We think we need a teacher. We think we need a savant. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You need a savior. Because your great need, even more than hygiene and even more than sexual purity and even more than diet, your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven. And if I have to tell you the love story of Leviticus to get you to believe it, that's exactly what I'll do. God knows what's best, better than you do. Let's pray. So Father... So Father, thank you that you're a good God and, and that in the love story of Leviticus, we see the love that is Jesus. Thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.